The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Livingston Taylor is joining us for the second time. He is a man who has had a more than 50-year career since he picked up the guitar at 13 years old. He is a singer, songwriter, guitarist, pianist, performer, recording artist, and a teacher. In addition to performing his own material, he's interpreted everyone from his contemporaries to standards of the American Songbook. He's shared the stage with the likes of Joni Mitchell, Jimmy Buffett, Linda Ronstadt, just to name a few. He's also an author. He wrote the book Stage Performance. Recently, he's released a boxed set. And folks, I am loving and will continue to love this. It's called Live, 50 Years of Livingston Taylor Live. And it's a retrospective, a collection of live recordings through the years. This is our second interview, so thank you very much for coming back. Oh, Paul, it's so great to hear your voice again, and great to be back with you, and thanks for making time for me. You're welcome, and it's a pleasure. But (laughs) the first interview that we did is something that has stuck around for a while. It's had its initial radio broadcast. It became a podcast. I've heard it referenced on other shows, and people continuously they come up to me or they email me and they mention that interview in particular. So here we are wow. again. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Live recordings are special, aren't they? Well, live shows are special. I always had difficulty with live listening to live recordings because I didn't understand initially what they were. And Oh, uh, 15 years ago or so, I had an epiphany as to what a live record was. I finally realized that a good live recording isn't a recording of me or the artist. Indeed, it's a recording of the audience listening to the artist. So if you're going to make a good live record, what you really need to record is an audience. Interesting. So when you hear, for instance, there are some classic live records, Ray Charles live at Newport, where you hear the audience healing a ill and troubled Ray Charles. When you hear Judy Garland live at Carnegie Hall and you hear the visceral, uh, the visceral upwelling of that crowd as they see her in her distress and all rally at the same time to lift her and to save her turning and they succeed in saving her and that turns them into miracle workers and oh they like that feeling very much no there's a lot of power in a live show amen And the listeners out there, we know what it's like to be in an audience, and we know how that feels, but what about you? What does it feel like to be the performer, the person performing on stage? Well, what it feels like, Paul, is first, 
I love being in the presence of my audience. I am comforted and joyful by the thought that I will be with them. I'm always bemused when people get nervous about an audience because my audience isn't my problem. They're my salvation. And so their very presence means that I have been saved yet one more day. Oh, God. It just fills me with joy to think about my audience. And, And as I'm fond of saying, they don't have to love me. I love them enough for the both of us. We're all done here. And so when I come out on stage and I see my audience, they feel the comfort and the joy that I feel at having been rescued by them. It occurs to me that you've seen a few concerts. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing. Who would you say was the best performer you ever saw? I think I saw Tom Jones in 1974 at the old Boston Garden playing in the round. Tom Jones was fantastic. Um, Day in and day out, the best performer I know in terms of audience interaction is Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett's relationship with his audience is truly wonderful. He truly sees them and knows them and revels in their affection and joy for him. I'm kind of chuckling because after I asked you that question, I picked up my pen and I wrote the words, Jimmy Buffett, question mark. <laughs> well, Jimmy Buffett is so good. Again, I've seen him do some remarkable things with a crowd. One time we were at Red Rocks outside of Denver. Uh, I'm sorry, outside of Phoenix. And we were at Red Rocks and uh, uh, and audience, the audience had gotten sort of balls or something and they were throwing them around the stadium or around the the venue at which point Buffett walked out on stage sensing that this wasn't eventually going to end well he walked out and he said to the audience he chastised him slightly he said don't throw those balls around don't do that at which point Somebody, doubtless in a moment of uh, intoxicated uh, irresponsibility, threw one of these things at Jimmy, and it missed him. And Jimmy watched that ball go past, and he turned back to that crowd with real fire in his eyes. And he pointed a finger and said, don't you throw that at me. And he chastised that entire audience. They were immediately regretful at that decision that one of them had made. And they were, of course, 
immediately forgiven, and the show went on. It uh, Buffett's skill with an audience is truly wonderful. By the way, Bonnie Raitt, also similar skills, similar love for an audience, similar grace with them. And my brother James has become very good at, at working a crowd, doubtless having finally been to enough of my shows to get his act together. <laughs> the first time we spoke, we were sitting at a little desk in your hotel room. And one of the things that we talked about was the American songbook, the classic songs. Yes. And those are songs that you've both performed, but you've also recorded, and also some country songs. Yeah. There are some country songs on this collection of live recordings. What do you think of country music? Well, first off, phrases like R&B, country, folk, Broadway, American Songbook. Listen, these are, these are marketing, branding. These are branding choices. These are not songwriting choices. The uh, Beatles songs can be done in a country mode. Uh, country songs can be done in a jazz mode. It's these are stylistic marketing questions or brandings. Actual song structure is a very different study. Interesting. And so if you're just breaking things down to lyric content, I was thinking this morning about that uh, wonderful song recorded. I've forgotten who the writers are now, but recorded by Jay and the Americans. Uh, Come a little bit closer. You're my kind of man, so big and so strong. Come a little bit closer. I'm all alone and the night is so young. And then when, when that verse, when the music stopped, I looked, the cafe was empty. And I heard the bartender say, Jose, you're in trouble plenty. So I dropped the drink from my hand and out the back door I ran. And as I rode away, I could hear her say to Jose, her man, come a little bit closer, you mucker. I'm telling you, that is fine technical lyric writing. <laughs> that is not written by inexperienced people. It is the syllables fit perfectly. The description is accurate. It alliterates well. And so that's where I go for songwriting. I go to the technical. What about that Tony Orlando and Dawn song? Knock three times on the ceiling if you want me. Twice on the pipe. Ah, ah. If the answer is no, bump, bump, bump means you'll meet me in the hallway. Twice on the pipe, clank, clank means you ain't gonna show. It's, oh, so uh, it's, it's very, very good writing. That's really good. Absolutely. I remember our first meeting, I asked you, is music 
more important or the lyric more important? And you said, lyrics are everything. <laughs> lyrics, ultimately, listen, listen, Paul, great melodies are important. Let's not, I got that. Dawn's promising skies, petals on a pooded thing. Imagine these in one set of eyes. What about uh, Eric Carmen? Never gonna fall in love again. I don't wanna start with someone new, cause I couldn't bear to see it in just like me and you. That's a song that's basically mediocre lyrically, and the verses are. Are, are really mediocre, but the melody is just beyond good. True. Uh, but occasionally you get both of them. <laughs> you get a great lyric and a great melody and a great storyline. And now, you know, you've got, listen, listen to when Billy Joel, don't go try it, some new fat then don't change the color of your hair. Oh man, that's good writing with a lovely flowing lyric. And it's, it's, it's effortless. He just so softly delivers it to you. Oh, good Billy Joel is unbelievable. And that's why selling out Madison Square Garden once a month into the foreseeable future, because people want to experience with others the commonality that they share at the joy of that great writing. Hmm. Wow. Wow, exactly. The hour before you called, I used that time to listen back again to a lot of the live recordings that you've made that are on this box set. Yeah. One of them that it's just one of my favorite songs to begin with, but I was listening to this live recording and at the beginning you're talking to the audience. I'm talking about you send me and oh, that's fun. Yeah. I was so emotionally there. I, I know how the song goes and I, I had a feeling I knew how it would go with you and this girl. But emotionally, I was right there. When you're a performing artist, how important is being in touch with emotion or your emotions? My, it is, it is surprisingly unimportant. What is important is not how I feel. How does my audience feel? What stories can I tell them? How do I weave tales of protagonists? or more importantly, the antagonists. How do, I, how do I talk about the human experience and make it clear and vivid that my audience will want to, will, will recognize themselves as unique and special human beings by the details that I told them about their lives? Because I'm telling you right now, if that audience doesn't walk out of there feeling better about themselves than they felt coming in, they're not going to come back again. Absolutely true. You need to add value to your audience and you add value by seeing them and by telling them about themselves. So what's the best way 
to connect with your audience? Uh, first off, what we do is you let the songs do the heavy lifting. Listen, I love Taylor Swift, but Taylor Swift's career, her songs are a vehicle for her brand. And if you have the choice of being Taylor Swift or Carol King, where with Carol King, all of her songs do the heavy lifting. Trust me, you want to be, you want to be Carol King. You want the songs to speak for themselves and to do the talking for you. One of the songs that's on this box set is Thank You Song. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was listening to that, and something that you express a lot of in our first interview you did, when you're on stage you do, and I mean just like this song, is Gratitude. I would be very curious to get your thoughts on this. Not too long ago, I went to the James Brown Amphitheater or theater, and I saw Bob Dylan in concert. Yeah. He did not say a word to the audience, as he famously does not say anything to the audience. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. What do you think of Bob Dylan? Well, first off, Bob Dylan does not have to speak or address his audience. And that is because all of he lets the songs do the heavy lifting. His song catalog is so extensive and so magnificent that it simply speaks for itself. Now, that said, it will speak for itself until Bob Dylan's death, whenever that comes. He will never have to do anything other than sit on stage and let somebody else play his songs. That would work, too, for him. For me, I don't have a song catalog that allows that. I need to express to my audience early and often my total gratitude. This also, Paul, gets to a phrase that I use, uh, that I'm fond of, a phrase of mine where I say, remember, the only anecdote for old age is gratitude. If you are old, I suggest you not be a, a bitter and bickerish because you will be marginalized if you are. Hmm. You must. And when you look at somebody who, like Tony Bennett, right, who still has a career in his early 90s, and that is the direct result of being simply a fountain of gratitude always. What would you say is the biggest sin of live performance? That you could make? That is a wonderful question. And the biggest sin of live performance is being on stage panicked by your broken heart, panicked that you will not be enough, panicked that you have interrupted people's lives and 
not have and will not have the content with which to justify that interruption. That is what nervousness is. That said, can you forgive yourself for not being enough? Wow. Now show business gets tough. Can you look at an audience and allow your fear that you might not be enough to melt into a broken heart because an audience can do nothing with your fear and panic. And what they can do is you can empower them to heal your broken heart. So there you are. You've let the audience heal you. You have turned the whole audience into Jesus Christ. You've made them miracle workers. And if you think they'll come back to feel that way again about themselves, you are absolutely right. Allow the audience to heal you, and you can only do that by allowing yourself to have a broken heart. When you go through these recordings, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is 50 years of live recordings. 50 years in this box set, yeah. It's crazy. What goes through your mind as you listen? Well, first off, when I listen to the very earliest stuff, what surprises me most is, is that I was a very good guitar player at a young age. I didn't remember that I played that well. And I wasn't a very versatile guitar player, and frankly still am not, but I did what I did very well. And that really surprised me at 17 and 18 that I played as well as I did. I, of course, had a magnificent teacher in my uh, brother, James. James is older than I. And when, and he would show me chords and when I would get them wrong, he'd slug me in the shoulder and then show me how to do it right. So for the price of a Uh, sore shoulder, I had a really good guitar teacher. Then the other thing that surprises me is when I was 20, I started taking voice lessons. I've always studied all my instruments and voice included. And what surprises me is in my late 20s and early 30s, I turned into a really good singer, a really good technical singer. And uh, I was delighted to hear that my thought that I could become a better singer was in fact uh, true and that I was able to get progressively better. So while we're time traveling, what do you think of the 18-year-old Liv Taylor? Well, first off, I admire his pluck and tenacity. I admire his survival skills, and I admire in him, as I admire in the 68-year-old Livingston Taylor, insatiable curiosity, ferocious curiosity about everything. And so 
That I admire. What I don't admire was I wish I had studied more music. I wish I had studied in depth, Paul, the history of music. The I wish I had a stronger classical underpinning. I wish that I had had a piano teacher when I was a young when I was a young boy that I didn't absolutely hate uh, because it it really limited the music that I learned disliking my piano teacher and so yeah those uh, those with those caveats that said it's worked out pretty well that it has one of the CDs in this box set is the the rarities the the songs that kind of <laughs> yeah they're the kind of oddball songs whenever i go to a concert and the singer just pulls something and the songs that make me say where did that come from i don't forget them and i'm also very entertained by them yeah tell us a little bit about that part of this collection um again i'm curious about stuff and those oddball those oddball songs they're just things that bemused me and if i'm bemused by them i'm generally every man enough let me rephrase that every person enough to be to assume that others will be amused by it as well and certainly in, in the case of rarities when they start amusing me i they didn't have enough content, basically, to keep doing them. Is there anything our listeners may be surprised to know you listen to? If we looked through your album collection or if we saw what you were streaming or however you listen, maybe something that our listeners would think, wow, I wouldn't have thought Livingston Taylor listened to that. Um, well, one of the things that that I listen to I listen to everything. I listen to commercials and I listen to the theme songs of the evening news. I listen to the roar of a adolescent's modified muffler. I, some things I found, feel, find pleasant, other things I find horrific, but, but I'm intrigued by all of them. Again, it feeds into the curiosity. How, how does it work? How, uh, why is somebody finding this interesting? And when I'm intrigued by it, I, I search it out. One of the songs that the listeners no doubt would associate with you, I certainly associate this song with you, and it's one of the songs that's on this box set, is Over the Rainbow. Yes. What is it about that song? You know, I've, obviously, it's written by Harold Arland in Yip Harburg, master songwriters. The Wizard of Oz is an iconic movie. Judy Garland is an identifiable figure and a figure that that I align with in terms of her energy and her a sort of a slightly manic persona that that sort of mirrors mine in a certain way. There's an edginess about her. And a, and a yearning when she sings that song. And I think that, uh, that I carry those same traits to it. A, 
real inner longing to be heard and to be seen, to, to say to people, oh, please, please find my broken heart because I can't heal it without you. And that song allows those expressions. It's very remarkable that you've had 50 years of these recordings. And again, everybody check out the box set. What do you credit this longevity and this success to? I accredit uh, earlier in one's life, you think that it might, that good luck might play a part. When you get to be in your late 60s, you understand that it was all good fortune. The stars lined up. I surfed the wave of popular music. I had my beautiful brother, James Taylor, to shield me from the glare of spotlight so I could sit under the umbrella of his fame and just seek out and learn, explore, discover. No, it's been a truly charmed life. On that note, my last question the title of the documentary about you, Life is Good. Also the title of your album, Life is Good. What is the best thing about being alive? Well, one of the things that, one of the conceptualizations that I've had recently is, Paul, is that phrase, where there is life, there is hope. And one of the things that has been in my brain in recent years is turning that phrase around. Where there is hope, there is life. It may be that hope is such a compelling human, compelling life need. I'm sorry, that hope is such a compelling universal need that life is created to manifest hope. And the simple truth is that hope always returns where there is life. And uh, yeah, and if life is good, hope is good. Everyone out there, you can visit LivingstonTaylor.com or LiveTaylor.com. They both go to the same place. The box set, it's called Live, 50 Years of Livingston Taylor. Mr. Taylor, thank you very much for spending time with me. All, as usual, a wonderful interview. Best to you, my friend. Thank you, sir. Until next time. Goodbye.